Okay, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Daniel, and we'll be in chapter number 5. Daniel, chapter number 5. You know, have everybody got a Bible? Anybody else need a Bible? Okay, all right. Now, let's set the setting of what's going on when we come to chapter 5. Seventy years have passed since Nebuchadnezzar captured Jerusalem and took Daniel away as a captive. So Daniel's getting to be a pretty old man when we come to, to chapter number 5. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's been dead now for 23 years when we come to chapter number 5. And there's been a few kings that have, uh, one of Nebuchadnezzar's sons took over, then another son. And when we come to chapter 5, there are actually two kings on the throne. It used to cause uh, or give the critics fodder for criticizing the Bible because in all of the archives going back to that time, there was a king named Nabonidus. And, and uh, he's on several of the, the uh, scrolls, several of the writings back in that time as being the king during the time that we're looking at in chapter number 5 when Babylon falls. Actually, we're looking at a time around 539 B.C. So it's, the critics say, you know, come to chapter 5 of Daniel and it speaks of Belshazzar the king. Well, there's a reason for that. We're going to see that. What has happened as we, as we come to chapter number 5, uh, Nabonidus has been, his army has been captured. The Medes and Persians have attacked the Babylonian Empire. Nabonidus has gone out to fight them. And he's been, his armies have been destroyed and he's been captured. And so the only thing left of the Babylonian kingdom is the city of Babylon itself. And Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, who was his second in command and he was the regent of uh, the city of Babylon, he by uh, default becomes king of what's left of the Babylonian empire. And, and they have since found uh, these writings that name uh, Belshazzar as this region of Babylon, so it all makes a lot of sense. And so anytime they dig up archaeological evidence, it always points to the truth of the, the, uh, the Bible. Well, anyway, Babylon suffered this great defeat. And the city of Babylon at this point is surrounded by the Medes. The Medes and Persians have united together in one army, and they have surrounded the city of Babylon. They've captured all of the surrounding land. And so it looks pretty bleak for Babylon. But Babylon was a, was a great city. It was a mighty city. And so here you have Belshazzar now, who is the de facto king. And uh, he's really not worried. He doesn't seem to be worried about what's going on. Because the city of Babylon was this mighty fortress. Uh, according to the ancient uh, historian Herodotus, uh, the city had, uh, it was about 15 square miles. It makes a pretty good sized city. Uh, it was surrounded by walls that were 90 feet wide. They could ride four chariots abreast on the, on the, on the top of the walls of, of, of the city of Babylon. The, 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 the walls were 350 feet high. There were 100 gates uh, around the walls, or in, placed in, in spots on the wall, there were a hundred gates, and they were made of solid bronze. And 
They also built a great moat all the way around uh, the outside of the walls. And the great Euphrates, Euphrates River ran right through the middle of the city of Babylon. And so they dug these moats out, and then the water would flow from the river into these moats. And so they had this, they had this, this, this what looked like an impenetrable fortress. I mean, they had this, this city, 15 square miles. They had this, the walls that went around it. Were, there was no way they were going to come over those walls. Uh, they were 90 feet thick. Uh, they had a moat surrounding the wall, and they had the Euphrates River running right through the middle of the city, and the walls came right up to the Euphrates River. So there was no way that Euphrates River run really fast, and so there was no way as an army was going to get inside the city of Babylon. And so Belshazzar felt really secure, and uh, his lords felt really secure. Only about half the army went out to fight uh, against the Medes and the Persians. And so there still were plenty of lords and there were still plenty of soldiers inside the city. So they just didn't see any way that, that uh, they were going to be defeated by these Medes and by the Mede and Persian army. Uh, so you know what they do? They throw a party. I mean, they're so confident. And Belshazzar wants to uh, emanate this confidence. And so he throws a big party. And he invites a thousand lords to the party. And so let's pick, let's, let's go uh, to the text and join the party. Let's, let's go to chapter 5, verse number 1. It says, Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. Now, even though Nabonidus, or Nab Nabonidus uh, had suffered this great defeat, uh, they still had plenty of lords. They still had plenty of soldiers. Uh, and so Belshazzar throws this party uh, to, to show just how confident he is that, hey, we're, we, we can just relax. Uh, there's, there's nothing they can do to, to, to penetrate this city. And so uh, uh, you got to ask the question, what about the, what about the economy? of? I mean, how are they going to survive in that 15 square miles. Well, they had the river running through there and they had those, the hanging gardens. And so they had a, a self-sufficient economy inside uh, the city, of, inside those gates of Babylon. Uh, they, had, uh, they, they had buildings that were, that were uh, three, story high, three stories high, running streets running throughout the city and most of the buildings were three stories high. Uh, they had the Temple of Baal, which was like eight stories high. And probably the most majestic building in the complex was the, was the palace itself. And, and in this palace, they, they, uh, they had this great banquet hall. And actually, uh, archaeologists have uh, uncovered uh, much of the city, and they've uncovered the palace, and they've uncovered this banquet hall. Or, you know, they don't, they're not sure it was a banquet hall, but this building that was... That was uh, uh, 90 feet wide and 150 feet long within the palace, and more than likely that's where this party's taking place. And so uh, they have this party, and I don't think Daniel got an invitation to the party. And we know he didn't get an invitation to the party. I don't know if he would have gone to the party if he had gotten an invitation, but, but uh, historians tell us that after Nebuchadnezzar died, that uh, he was succeeded by his evil son, or actually his son's name was Evil Merodach. So what a name for a kid. 
And once he took power, uh, he banished from the throne all of Nebuchadnezzar's wise men, all of the sorcerers, all of, he, he wanted his own uh, entourage. And so he got rid of all of the ministers that had served Nebuchadnezzar. And that was a big mistake. Uh, apparently Daniel didn't leave the city. Probably he ended up, ended up in some type of semi-retirement there in the city of Babylon, and he's pretty much forgotten. He's off on his own, and so he's, he's not at the party. And so here the party begins, and uh, they're drinking their wine, and they're shouting praises to their god, Baal, or Baal. Uh, kind of like a song we sang tonight, Yahweh, Yahweh, we love to shout your name. They love to shout the name of Baal. And so uh, 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 they were shouting the name of Baal. And, and w- w- one of the things that they did when, when, uh, in, in ancient times, when they would worship their God, they would like to profane another God because that lifted up their God. And so on this particular night, they decided that they would profane uh, Daniel's God, Yahweh, Jehovah. Now, that, that's a big, big mistake. And uh, so look what they do in verse number two. And so it says, while he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. So they profane, the, they desecrate these vessels. They profane these vessels by drinking from these vessels and shouting praises to Baal. Now, as proud of a man as Nebuchadnezzar was, what had he done with those vessels when he took them from the temple of Yahweh? He put them away. And he had never brought them out of storage. And so they, they had pretty much stayed there during, throughout his whole kingdom because, because he respected uh, other gods. And he especially respected the God of the Hebrews because of some of the things that we've looked at so far. The incident with Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and Daniel's interpretation of the dream. And then later on, he's even, we, I believe he was even saved by Yahweh. And so Yahweh became his God. So he never touched those vessels. But here's this, this son of his, Belshazzar, and uh, he's sitting in the banquet hall, and he's probably on a platform looking down over the lords, and he passes out these vessels from the temple, and they drink from those vessels, and they shout praises uh, to his god, Baal. Verse number four. They drank wine, and they praised the gods, not only Baal, but they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. Now, if you could be up in heaven about this time, what do you think maybe God thinks about all of this? You know what I think he's thinking? Enough is enough. I've had it. The cup of wrath is full. Judgment is at hand. You know, yeah, this guy had a lot of nerve. Here he is. These lords had a lot of nerve. Here they are surrounded by hundreds of thousands of soldiers 
that if they get inside of that city, they're toast. They're going to kill them. And yet, they're confident. They're confident in their God by hell. They're so confident in their God by hell that they're going to profane and desecrate uh, the vessels of the God, Yahweh, really the, we know, the true and living God. And I think maybe deep down inside, they knew he was the true and living God. That just sounds, that sounds like something so far out and so uh, beyond anything we would do that it really, there's no application there for us. But there really is, isn't there? I think one of the applications for us is taking anything relating to Jehovah God, anything that's holy to Jehovah God, and desecrating or profaning those vessels or, or his word or uh, anything related to him. I think that's a, there's a real danger in doing that. You remember what Paul had to say about the Lord's Supper, about desecrating the Lord's Supper. You know, I I wonder sometimes if we take the Lord's Supper serious enough, and I wonder what God in heaven thinks about it when we are partaking of the Lord's Supper. You know, I don't think he would get mad if you drank the grape juice at the end of the service or if you ate the crackers. I don't think that would desecrate the Lord's Supper. But if we don't take seriously uh, the meaning of that grape juice and the meaning of those crackers, then we're in danger of profaning the Lord's Supper. I mean, because that, that wine or that grape juice in that cup symbolizes what? It symbolizes the blood of Jesus Christ. Those crackers that we hold in our hands and we eat symbolize what? The broken body of Jesus Christ. You remember what Paul said to the Corinthians over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, therefore you come together in one place. It is, is, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one of you takes his own supper ahead of the others. And one is hungry and another, another is drunk. In other words, you're about filling your bellies and drinking wine more than you are about uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper. What, he says, do you not have houses to eat and drink your wine in? Or do you not despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. He goes on to say, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, may be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. You know what? I think that warning are the consequences of taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner are greater than the consequences of what Belshazzar did here at this banquet. What's it mean to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? Well, he tells us in verse 29, he says, For he who eats or drinks... In an unworthy manner, eats or drinks judgment to himself. And here's the unworthy manner. Not discerning the Lord's blood and not discerning his body. 
not taking that grape juice very seriously as being the blood of Christ and that cracker as being the body of Jesus Christ. And he goes on and says, for this reason, uh, God says enough is enough. And for this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. So, you know, I think there's a lot of ways to desecrate the things of God. There are a lot of other areas we could talk about. That's just one example. So, you know, we don't want to be too quick to point fingers at Belshazzar, but, but in, any, in any case, God had had enough. And, and look at what happens in verse number 5. It's pretty scary. In the same hour, the fingers of, the man's hand, of a man's hand appeared and rode opposite the lampstand on plaster of a wall of the king's palace. That's funny, in, in the, in the uh, ruins of, of Babylon, there's actually in the king's palace, they found the remains of a plaster wall uh, with the lampstand on it. And, and why would the writing take place on a plaster wall next to a lampstand? Well, they didn't have lighting like we have, electrical lighting. They, they, their building was lit with, with torches and candle lobbers. And so, so, uh, so and, and for the writing to be seen clearly, you write on a white plaster wall. And so you have this picture here next to the torch or next to the, to the candles, you have this writing that takes place. So in the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw part of the hand that wrote. That, that had to be a scary, there wasn't a, there wasn't a full body there. All there was was a hand coming out of the darkness and writing on the wall. That, I guess the hand of God, the hand of an angel. And, and nothing but the fingers. And it appears at, at a place where everybody can see it on this plaster wall. And more than likely, uh, or not, I don't think more than likely, the words were written in Aramaic. And so the words could be understood, but the meanings of the words could not be understood. You, you remember the words, many, many, we'll look at this next week, tekel, uh, eupharsin, uh, which translated into English from Aramaic means numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Now, if I was to read that on that wall right now, number, number, way divided, and I saw a hand write that on the wall, that would be pretty troubling. But I really wouldn't understand the meaning of those words. I would understand the meanings of the word numbered, but what is it trying to say to me? What, what is this hand that's writing these words, this God behind this hand, what is he trying to say to me? Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Well, I'll tell you one way you could have found out what he was trying to say to you if you were Belshazzar. You could have read the scrolls of Jeremiah because Jeremiah prophesied a uh, hundred years or so before this uh, of the events exactly as they took place that night. Listen, listen to me. Listen to what he has to say uh, over in Jeremiah 50, 1 through 3. If you want to turn there, you can. But Jeremiah 50, 1 through 3. Says the word that the Lord spoke against Babylon and against the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet. Declare among the nations, proclaim and set up a standard, proclaim, do not conceal it. 
say Babylon is taken. And this is really neat. It says Baal is shamed. I mean, this God that they're shouting praises to, Baal is shamed because he's not going to be able to protect these people. Uh, the other God, Merodach, is broken in pieces. Her idols are humiliated. Her images are, are broken in pieces. For no, out of the north, a nation comes up against her. He's talking about the Medes and the Persians, which will make her land desolate. And no one shall dwell therein. They shall move, they shall depart, both man and beast. And it gets even more specific if you go to Jeremiah 51 and look down at verse number 28. He says, prepare against her the nations with the kings of the Medes, its governors and its rulers, all the land of his dominion. And the land will tremble for sorrow, for every purpose of the Lord will, shall be performed against Babylon. What's his purpose against Babylon at this point? To destroy Babylon. Why is he destroying Babylon? Because Babylon was a godless nation. That's one of the reasons. But Babylon was the tool God used to destroy Jerusalem, destroy Israel, and take them into captivity. And so Jeremiah, when all of this was happening 70 years before this or 100 years before this, when when they were about to be taken into captivity, he says, yeah, they're going to be taken into captivity, but one day Babylon is going to be judged. And, and the judgment is severe, so much so that it would become a desolate place uh, throughout history. Then in verse number 30, it says, the mighty men of Babylon have ceased fighting. They've remained in their strongholds. Their might has failed. Uh, they become like women. They have burned her dwellings places. The bars of those hundred gates are broken. So it was clear as the handwriting on the wall, as the expression says. It was as clear as the handwriting on the wall that ju the judgment of Babylon was at hand. Now look at verse number 6. Verse number 6, it says, Then the king's countenance changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his hips were loosened. You ever had that happen? The joints of your hips loosen up and your knees begin to knock because you're so scared you can't really even stand straight. He says the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. One translation puts it like this. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together. I mean, even the wine wasn't enough to keep uh, Belshazzar from being deathly Deathly afraid. Uh, suddenly he's not so bold. Uh, uh, he realizes that he doesn't know what those words mean on the wall. But he realizes that they spell trouble for himself and for Babylon. Look at verse number 7. And then the king in fear, he shouts. I mean, cries out aloud. He shouts, bring the astrologers, bring the Chaldeans, bring the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise man of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me the interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Now, why would he say third ruler? Because Nabadonis was the first ruler. He was the second ruler, even though uh, Nabadonis had, had been captured at this point. He is the first ruler over Babylon, uh, and Belshazzar is the second, and he would make them third in command, which would be, uh, by default, he would be second in command. But that's not much of an honor 
for a kingdom that's about to fall. And, and so that's not much of a privilege for a kingdom that's about to fall. That's why when Daniel reads the words writing on the walls, he says, keep your, keep your stuff. Uh, I don't want it. We'll see that next week. Then, then uh, uh, he gets the wise man. The wise man come in, and they can't, they can't interpret uh, what the words mean. Look at verse 8. It says, now all the king's wise men uh, came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed. Now, he's already pale, but he gets paler. And, and, uh, and he's, he was afraid, and he gets very afraid. And all of his lords are astonished uh, because they, everybody knows something's up. Everybody, you know, here they are, they're having a party. Uh, if, if Dandy Don Meredith was there at this point, he would say, sing, turn out the lights, the party's over. And they realize that. They realize that things are really going to get bad, and, and they're, they're very afraid. And so uh, uh, Belshazzar's mama hears about it, and he was kind of a mama's boy. S- some expositors say that Belshazzar was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, so he was just a young kid. At this point, uh, because the word for father uh, in Arabic can be uh, translated, is used for grandfather too. That's a possibility. Uh, but, and that's true for the word mama. It could be grandmama. So it's, this could be his grandmother. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar could have been his grandfather. But in any case, he's, he's of that line. And she hears about uh, what's going on in the banquet hall. And so she comes running to help her little baby. And look at verse number 10. It says, the queen, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. I mean, don't be so sad. Maybe it's not as bad as you think it is. Uh, maybe I know a guy who can help you. Uh, he helped your dad uh, when he was in trouble. And actually, you know, his dad, your dad was troubled about a dream, and, and, and that dream was... Uh, it scared him a lot, but once he found out the interpretation of the dream, it actually was pretty good. He found out that he was the head of gold, and so, so maybe this is good news. Maybe it's not as bad as it sounds. So she tells him in verse number 11, there is a man in your kingdom in, in whom the spirit, now watch this, of the holy God. She recognizes Jehovah as the holy God. You know, I think maybe Belchasar did too. I think a lot of people do. Why would he be worshiping Baal if Jehovah is the true and holy God? Why would you worship Baal? Well, let me tell you what, any Baal, Baal is just a a creation of man's wicked heart and a wicked mind. And why do we, why do our, our, men and women so quick to worship idols because you can control an idol. You can tell an idol what to do. You can, you can have a party. You can have a, a, an orgy in front of your idol. You can't do that in front of Jehovah God. It's the other way around. Jehovah God tells us what to do. And so when we become the children of God, we submit to God. God doesn't submit to us. And so... Hey, they, all of these people knew who the holy God was. They just, you know, they liked Bell better uh, because they could do the things that they wanted to do. And, and, you know, I think his mom was like that too because, hey, she's 
telling him something she might should have told him a long time ago when he was a little kid. But anyway, he says, There is a man in your kingdom uh, in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of God, were found in him. So, I mean, he was almost like a God because he had the spirit of God in him. You know, that's true of us. I mean, when we're filled with the spirit of God, we become God-like. We become like children of God. I mean, when we're not filled with the Spirit of God, we become like children of the devil or Baal. But uh, this Daniel guy, she said he was special. I mean, he was almost like a God himself. And Nebuchadnezzar, your father, uh, your father, the king, made him the chief of magicians and astrologers and Chaldeans and soothsayers. And I mean, I, I don't think Daniel saw himself as a soothsayer or a, a magician or a witch or an astrologer, but but uh, he was the chief wise man. And inasmuch as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding, interpreting dreams and solving riddles and explaining enigmas were found in Daniel, whose name, just like, almost like yours, Belteshazzar, yours is Belteshazzar, his is Belteshazzar, almost means the same thing. Now let, let's call Daniel. Let's bring Daniel in and he will give the interpretation. She knew where he was living, somewhere he was living, somewhere in Babylon, probably in a pretty nice place. Nebuchadnezzar had set him up pretty good, and, and uh, he's living in semi-retirement, and, and so they call for Daniel. Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? And Daniel said, Yes. He said, I've heard of you that the spirit, watch this, of God, of Jehovah God. He knew who God was. I mean, we can create idols, but deep down inside, we know there is an ultimate God who created this universe, who owns this universe, who created us, and we have to answer to that God at some point in our lives. We can, I don't care what idols we have that we can worship on a temporary basis while we're on this earth. Deep down inside, everybody knows that there is a superior God. Otherwise, there is no God. Because God, by its very definition, means supreme being. And so if your God is not supreme, he's not a God. But I think all of these people knew that Jehovah was the supreme God. They had heard it from Nebuchadnezzar, and, 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 and they saw, they, they, they had the history of what Nebuchadnezzar, the experiences he had had with Jehovah God. And so, so Belshazzar knew this. So he said, I have heard of you, that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you because the Spirit of the true and living God, the God of truth, is in you. The real God, the God most high. So, how foolish is this guy, Belshazzar? He finally has figured out that it's time to consult another God. 
It's time to get help from another God. And he's pushed God with his arrogance and his pride. And he's pushed God with his blasphemies. And I believe he's waited. I mean, according to the story here, he waited till it was too late. Until the writing was on the wall. To ask God for wisdom and guidance. You know what was happening that very night while Belshazzar was calling upon Daniel? The Medes and the Persians were finishing a dam. They had built up river on the Euphrates River. What were they going to do? They were going to dam up the river and drive that riverbed going into Babylon. And they were going to march their armies right into the middle of the city and burn the city down. Just as Jeremiah prophesied. Kind of an amazing thing because there was a guy a while back who saw himself as a, almost like Nebuchadnezzar saw himself. You remember a guy named Saddam Hussein? And he set out to rebuild the ancient city of Babylon. That was his goal. One day he was going to rebuild it, and he was going to dwell in it. What serious problem about that? He had never read the book of Jeremiah, because Jeremiah said there ain't nobody going to dwell in it. Nobody throughout history has dwelled in it. It hasn't been rebuilt. Now, there's, you get in the book of Revelation, there is an ancient there is a reference to Babylon, Babylon, the mighty city that's fallen, but I think that refers to a type of the literal Babylon that we're looking at here in this text. Maybe not. Maybe it will be rebuilt, but it won't be rebuilt. When it's re- if it is rebuilt, you know it's the end. It's like when the temple's rebuilt, you, you know we're at the very end. You know, I wonder about us sometimes. I wonder about some of our friends and some of our family members. People in our society, our Supreme Court. How we push God. And we push God. And we push God until the writing's on the wall. And then when the writing's on the wall, It's too late. It's too late. I mean, God is full of mercy. God is full of grace. I mean, goodness, if you really believe in God and you look at what's going on in the world today, you look at, I look at my own life, you look at what's going on in my, I mean, God is just so full of mercy and grace. He was full of mercy and grace to these Babylonians to let it go on as long as it went on. And I don't know that maybe if they had seen the writing on the wall and they'd fell down and worshipped Yahweh, maybe at that point he might have saved their city. Maybe he saved Nineveh, you know, in a similar situation. But I don't think he would have wrote it on the wall if in his mind and his omniscience he didn't know that their time was up, that it was numbered, and they'd been found wanting. 
and their time was up. You know, we've got enemies out there that are working against us. The flesh, the devil, and the world. And you know what they're trying to do? They're trying to dam up that river that flows from the Lord into our hearts. So if they can dry that up, they've got an open door into our lives. And one day, for some people it's too late. And just like Babylon was taken down by this great disaster, we could be taken down by a great disaster. I really worry about our nation just along those very lines. I worry about a lot of people I know. I worry sometimes about myself. because I, I sometimes trample on the mercy of God. I try to take that for granted. The love and mercy of God. Maybe I push too hard sometimes. Man, I'd hate to wake up one night and see many, many tackle whatever it is on the wall. But it might be just too late. Thank you, God, for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that, that uh, hey, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we really, we've got a world out there that's really pushing hard right now. We've got a lot of friends and relatives that are pushing hard. We know people that are pushing hard. We don't want them to see the writing on the wall. We want to get them to the Lord before it's too late. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for the seriousness of this text. and Lord, we thank you for how merciful you are to us. Lord, Help us to reach those people that are pushing you, Lord. Those people that are blaspheming you and desecrating your holy things. There's a lot of people in our nation doing that right now. So, Lord, we ask that you give us opportunity and power to be your witness during these dark times so that none of them see that writing on the wall. Lord, just give us those just give us those opportunities. We ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen.